Chapter 48 Coming Home We entered Lebanon without incident, I with my Lebanese documents and Alberto with a three-month visa. It was November the 10th, 2002, almost one year of walking. What most surprised me about that morning's walk was the general poverty that surrounded us. Partially constructed homes, atrocious roads, and what looked like a large refugee camp with closely huddled tents. I knew that the country was rebuilding from civil war, but wondered why it was taking so much longer here. We spent our first night in the home of a most hospitable Muslim family who shared their Ramadan meal with us. The young man we met there insisted that we visit his high school the following day, and we did, meeting its remarkable principal. He already knew of our walk and took us on a tour of his school. As you have seen walking here, he said, this is an impoverished area. Most of the people living here are Palestinian refugees and mostly Shiite Muslims. I'm sure you've heard of their more militant arm, Hezbollah. The children here see no future in a country that they're continually reminded is run by Christians and for Christians. Their spiritual leaders, the clerics in the Shiite community, make them see only the injustice and futility of hope and breed hatred and intolerance. I am here to undo their influence. Young men and women passed by us, and he greeted each by name, asking about their families. Some of the girls wore headscarves, but all were dressed in modern street clothing. His caring for them was evident, and their respect for him even more so. I teach them the trades, he continued, showing us a classroom with car engines and another with electrical wires. They learn to work with people whose ideas differ from theirs and to befriend them. Here, they are not Christians or Muslims, Sunni or Shiite, poor or wealthy. Here, they are students, and they are equal. I couldn't help but feel inspired by this man's courage and tenacity, his determination to continue despite the odds against him. We accepted his invitation to stay at his home that evening and to leave for my village of Farhazir the following day. I saw my family home and slowed my steps. I was happy to be there, but incessant thoughts plagued me. What will my family think about Alberto? Will he start talking about wizards and magic with them? How will they judge him? How will they judge me? Should I tell them we're engaged? How can I tell them if I haven't even told my parents yet? I eased the kitchen door open. Yola stood at the sink, washing dishes. Her eyes bulged open when she saw me, and she began to scream my name, clapping her hands and slapping her thighs. She rushed towards me and almost lifted me off the ground with her tight embrace. Her eyes sparkled with light and energy. Her face glowed with a healthy flush. I couldn't believe that this was the same woman I had left only eight months earlier. The only indication of her struggle was the patch of missing hair on one side of her head. This is Alberto, I said. He is walking with me to Jerusalem. She shook his hand warmly, repeating the words, welcome, mixed with its Arabic counterpart, Ahlo Sahla. She brought him to the bench to sit down, 
then excitedly rushed outside, calling out to our neighbor. Within moments, the house was full of well-wishers. Coffee magically appeared, and everyone drank a small cup, celebrating our safe return. The house finally quieted, and Yola began to prepare dinner. I showed Alberto around, and then led him to the upstairs apartment. I think you'll be comfortable here, I said, reaching for the door. What do you mean, I? he asked. Well, I was thinking you could stay here while I stayed downstairs with the family, I replied awkwardly. Alberto glared at me. You're afraid to tell them about us, he accused. I looked at my feet, unable to see my cowardice reflected in his face. I'm sorry, I whispered. I just can't do it. Is that why you took your ring off? He asked sadly. I had slipped my ring off just before entering the house, but I could still see its outline tattooed against my tanned skin. I felt ashamed for lacking the courage to speak about something so beautiful and for betraying Alberto and myself. I turned and walked away, leaving him standing alone. The days passed agonizingly slowly. Not only was I lying about my relationship with Alberto, but living a lie. I had become the superficial person I had worked hard not to be, hiding my true self, fearing my family's judgments. I was sick of hearing myself speak about banalities, but couldn't seem to stop. No one asked about our relationship, and I didn't elaborate, even when there were opportunities to do so. Everyone asked general questions about our walk, but never probed into our deeper intentions. I could have offered them, of course, but chose to remain silent, entrenching myself even deeper in my own inadequacy. Everyone embraced Alberto and made him a part of all activities, including picking and pressing olives. One of my cousins even taught him a few words of Lebanese, and when he used them, he endeared himself even more to my family. Our most memorable activity during this time was a visit to the museum and tomb of Khalil Gibran, the Lebanese mystic, artist, and poet, best known for his book, The Prophet. He was buried in a picturesque village deep in the mountains of Lebanon, in an old cavern where hermits had sought refuge since the 7th century. His personal letters and belongings were on display, along with his paintings. I felt a tremendous peace being there and knew that Alberto was enjoying his time too. I thanked this great prophet for taking away my cares that day and from bringing his brand of spirituality into the world rather than hiding it away. I hope to one day be able to do the same. In the gift shop, the attendant asked our names and where we were from. Alberto, she smiled, you have the same name as Khalil. Alberto is Spanish for Albert, and Albert is English for Khalil. You have the same name as the Prophet. Alberto smiled in contentment. I wanted his memories of Lebanon to be filled with moments such as these, to wash away the hurt that my fear had brought. Alberto had taken off his ring too, and it had hurt me deeply. The mark that he bore on that finger would be my reminder that I still had much work to do. One afternoon, 
Yola developed a fever that doctors worried would create complications that her body couldn't defend. The family prayed, while Alberto and I did our separate healing meditations. The following morning found Yola seated in her bed, filing her nails. She greeted us cheerfully, telling us that she had felt fantastic before shooing us away to have our breakfast. Alberto sat beside me, humming. Why are you so happy, I asked. Last night, I meditated for her, he said conspiringly. It was one of the most powerful visualizations I've ever done. I felt the energy shooting out of my hands and my body. I feel as if I'm back on track again. I realize that to perform miracles, I must choose what I want without fear of making a mistake. Fear robs them of energy. So last night, I said to the universe, I'm ready. No more fears, no more conditions, only confidence. My will is God's will. And because of that, my meditation was amazing. But who are you to choose that she should get better? I interjected. I think that's interfering in another's life path. We don't know her soul's purpose with this illness. Or it's a convenient excuse to not risk making a mistake and say it's God's will, he responded. I don't think it's up to me to decide whether a person should live or not, I countered. In healing work, especially when I don't have that person's permission, I think my role is to be a clear channel for love. What that energy does in her body and how it manifests itself in her life, well, it's not up to me. That's God's will. That's the highest good we keep talking about. I think so long as you have God in your thoughts, then you are working with the highest good, Alberto replied. In that state, you're not only healing the illness, but passing along your intention that they awaken that healing consciousness within them. There are endless studies of patients who are prayed for without their knowledge and who recover. I think what matters is that you trust the purity of your intention and not fear making a mistake. I still believe that's playing God, I contested. Perhaps if the patient collaborates in their healing and not simply delegates the healing to me, then I can say that my will is that they heal because it is their desire too. I'm only augmenting their energy until they learn to do it for themselves. Until you can overcome your fear of offending God or infringing on what you believe is his will, Alberto said with finality, then you will always delegate to a higher power and never claim the same divine power that is within you. In this, Alberto, I don't think we will ever agree, I concluded.